0: Welcome back podcast listeners, episode 106 here today. And as I said last week, it's an exciting one. I was sitting in a meeting a couple of weeks ago um, with this guy and it just prompted me straight away that we had to get him in here for a podcast. Tony wasn't in that meeting, but I sent through the diary invite straight away afterwards and just thought this is one that people are gonna love. Um, Today we have Jason Kay, who's a commercial lawyer with a focus on developing strong knowledge of the changing commercial environment and effects on clients' unique business drivers. Now, Jason works for McPherson Kelly, um, and I'm gonna get him to talk about what he does um, in specifics, but where I will start is, we've seen the change of brand at Coffcan Bond, um, and the amazing work that Richard Henderson did. Um, and once we've seen that branding, we thought we need to protect this. This is that good, Tony, that we need to protect this brand. So reached out to Jason, um, and made sure he was the man that protected it for us. And I think something that also stands out is McPherson Kelly did win Trademark Firm of the Year for Asia IP Awards,
1: um, so we like to go and get the best Tony.
2: Absolutely, and that's the best you sitting in the room.
0: Jason, welcome.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me on. It's um, yeah, certainly great to be here and chat to you guys about um, some areas of practice that I work. So, yeah, McPherson Kelly we're a full service commercial law firm. We're focused on the mid market as our primary market for businesses. Um, I've personally been for the, in the firm for about three years now, and I'm an associate in our intellectual property and trade team. Um, our focus is. So, were you
2: mentored then by Belinda Sigismundi right from day one?
1: Uh, so, yeah, Belinda yep. Sigismundi um, is one of the principals um, for our trademarks and IP area. And mm. Also, Kelly Dixon and yep. Paul Curtin, um, who you may have met over the time um, with I've your interaction. Yes, yeah. I had lunch with Paul. And so it gives a really good broad area of practice areas that we've got. And so it's really front-end our uh, practice team, which is good because it it means we're typically advising clients on the practical elements of their business and not where it's in the argy-bargy, in the disputes area. We we do a little bit of that, but it's more really front-end customer focus and compliance with regulatory regimes, so.
2: So can I ask a question there? Because Jamie did tell you I would butt in. (laughs) So um, (laughs) So I have to be true to his word. Um, so on that basis, I've often said lawyers, and especially lawyers who work in, say, family law or you know estate, hmm. it's they're dealing with death and divorce. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the two most emotional things that can go through. So, from your perspective, you know, I've often said with, when it comes to lawyers. You Lawyers get engaged when you put, want to put something together so you don't end up in a dispute, mm. um, or that you are potentially in a dispute, or you're about to have a dispute. So it's, it always seems to be you know, boxing gloves on, or, mm. or threatening uh, at least. From your perspective then, you're actually, like for example, protecting our trademark you're actually putting that in place so we avoid disputes in the future, is that correct?
1: Yeah, we work in the proactive space, primarily, which is... That must
2: be so refreshing for a lawyer. It's <laughs> a lot better, yeah. uh,
1: because you're not having to work where directors or CFOs or CEOs of businesses are not wanting to actually spend money on things that have caused issues or they're trying to get out of problems. It's more about taking steps before the issues happen, as you said and making sure that the business runs right, that there's growth and that you can move into new markets and engage with bigger clients or be able to uh, engage with other distribution channels or mm. however the business may operate. Um, yes, yeah, certainly a more happy, exciting type of area of law for us.
2: Yes, yeah, so if you take our business as an example, we've got our new branding. Uh, you know, going through that entire exercise, it's a very rewarding, button but you know can be expensive mm. uh, but very rewarding um, exercise to go through as well. When we were speaking to you about protecting that brand, well actually when we first spoke to you I said, listen, we're probably going to go through a rebranding exercise Perfect. and hold off yeah uh, until we actually go through that exercise and yeah. do it then. So where where is the potential risks to a business like ours of not protecting our brand?
1: Yeah, so essentially if you get trademark protection, and I, I remember quite distinctly when, after the first time we met um, a number of years ago now, mm. uh, you gave me your business card and I looked at it and I saw the logo that you had there at the time with the KB on mm. it, and I was like, oh, I'll have a look and see if they're actually protected. Again, that proactive type of approach yes. that we try and take, and I was like, no, you don't have any trademark protection, and so, by not having that protection, you didn't have exclusive rights in Australia, and it again, can be broadened into different broadened into different countries. But in Australia specifically, IP protection gives you that exclusive right to be able to say this is our brand, this is how we want to use it, and these are the classes or the types of goods and services that are supplied to. Yeah. Um, so without that. You're in the fight still, and you could say, "Hey, this is ours." You probably need to go to court and to enforce it, but with that trademark protection, you've got that straight away, and it makes it a lot easier to say, "This is our registered trademark." You got the certificate. We've sent you the certificate. You've yes. seen the certificate. It's yes. <laughs> <that. Yeah. laughs> yep. And you go, "This is our certificate." And you're ho- I'm holding up a fake certificate here, at the, <laughs> um, and you go, "This is ours," and this gives you a very clear right to say, "Get out of this area." And we find that most of the time the protections that it gives, you won't even know about. Yeah, It happens more when someone goes to look at creating a new business and let's say in the financial services area and they want to create one that's similarly named or has the similar ampersand, the really unique aspect of your um, logo and they go, oh, that's already protected through this trademark registration and so they go, we'll find a different one. Mm. You don't, You never know about that, but it's already doing that without you having to do anything about it.
2: Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so, as an example, we couldn't go and change our name to Macquarie Private <laughs> Financial <laughs> Services. They might have an issue with they, that Macquarie. They may <laughs> have an issue. Correct. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, so they pretty big. It's a pretty yeah. big force to yeah, come onto the I'm not going to argue yeah. with Macquarie. So <laughs> <laughs> they could be expensive. Yeah. And, and
1: we were also talking um, a couple of weeks ago when we were chatting about whether it's a unique slogan you may have. And like with Toyota, they've got that really iconic, oh, what a feeling. Um, you couldn't be saying, oh, what a feeling, Kofkin Bond. Like, the, it just. You, they have that right to be able to say that's our that's our marketing material
2: yeah okay yeah. so even though we don't sell cars they could still stop us from using that as it's a slogan. well they do have the yeah. Toyota Finance yes. so okay. there could be gotcha. that overlap
1: yeah. okay
0: and I think was it, when, on that conversation that we we're having as well it was interesting we were looking at um, I think in our boardroom there sits the hand sanitizer for people yeah. coming in and you were saying you know you're always looking at that, just seeing where Mm. things are placed and they're meant to be placed in the right. I I just thought that was amazing. So what happens there when you're looking at a product and a brand um, with the writing on it?
1: Yeah, so for me, and it probably happens with a lot of the front end commercial lawyers, it's trying to understand straight away where there may be gaps in compliance um, and making sure that it is done correctly. So like when I, unfortunately, and fortunately at times, when I see any product really, it's like I see the labeling because I do a lot of advertising and labeling work and you kind of go oh okay so they say that it's made in australia from 98 percent of australian goods or and so all of those unique characteristics and that are there or how they try and sell it to you by saying that you know this is 99% will kill 99% of germs or all those types of phrases how does that link in with what the competition and consumer laws say or how does that link in with what the therapeutic goods association says um, so from that perspective.
2: Is that where Nurofen got into trouble days back so you know for example targets back pain targets pain in your little fingernail. It's, but they were all the same. Yeah it was actually the, the Correct, same. Correct yeah. yeah okay.
1: Um, and so that's from that advertising all the the portrayals of your business. Um, And so one of the big ones, again, that we were talking about last time is that every time that you look at, uh, you see one of the spray and wipe ads where it says 99.8% kills 99% of germs. And then they do the graphic on there, which looks really cool. You got someone spraying it and it wipes away. There's always one little one that's been left behind because it's 99.8%, not 100% certain. And they kind of have to make sure that they don't wipe away 100% of the germs.
0: So how long does it take you and your wife to go shopping at a supermarket? <laughs> 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 um, Jason, I just want yeah. to buy the apple. <laughs> well, it, it does
1: um, get a little bit funny where I pick up a product and go, Hey, look, I approved, you know, the, the, the labeling for this. And she goes, put that down. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, i slowly start as it becomes more and more common like when i first did a couple of them it it was really you know those proud moments to go you help that client be able to get that product into you know woolies or coles or some of the other retailers and go that wording that they've chosen we assisted them to kind of just tweak it a little bit or to change it and you go oh yeah I, i know that and that's how it's kind of turned out and that's the really amazing part of our job is that practical side and the end part of it. Again, it's not like a case where um, you read a judgment at the end. That's not the space we operate. It's more about seeing the businesses grow and actually getting their products out there, all their services out there.
0: Yeah. And so, on that, we, we, when you were talking advertising and marketing, you now it's, it's important that everyone knows the laws around it, but it becomes really important at a certain revenue point, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. So, from a privacy perspective, the way that you use, say, personal information. The revenue kind of kicks in, in an important aspect at around that 3 million revenue per annum. And so when you do hit that 3 mil, you tend to start now becoming out of that small business type of bracket into that more medium, mid-size, and then you keep going and going. Um, but as you hit that 3 mil, that's typically one of the first times that you need to start complying with, say, privacy laws, as an example.
0: Yeah. So, on privacy laws, we were talking about data breaches before, um, mm. and there's some interesting cases, and, and I, I sort of was talking about another podcast that I was listening to, and we get people get those emails through saying, look, if you don't pay us this amount of money, we're gonna do this to
1: you. So, that actually does happen. It, it does every now and then, and it's quite interesting working that space with the privacy compliance and cybersecurity, and um, again, that's one of the areas that I work quite a lot in, and a very enjoyable space not many people see privacy as a super interesting area. Um, yeah. but And most businesses above that three mil have a, well they should have a privacy policy. Not everyone would read them. I am one of those ones that kind of click on the link down the bottom. I've clicked on Kofkin Bonds, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and, but probably the only one in this room that's read it. Yeah. <laughs> I've, yes. had, I've, had, I've had to go through it. I've had to go through it. <laughs> and so when uh, being able to ensure that it actually is in place and that the wording's right but um, that uh, from the that area can be quite interesting because it's usually something that you're not thinking about until it happens and being able to manage those crises as they kind of happen and have almost a steady head come in and say just chill out but we know that something bad's happened like someone's accessed your data or um, you've accidentally sent an email to that in, you didn't BCC everyone and you included your whole um, marketing uh, database there so everyone knows who you're actually marketing to that's the biggest thing I freak about yeah. every time if I've got to send out
0: a bulk the amount of times I just take Take if that extra fifteen. Second, yeah. Fifteen looks at it to say, "Okay, they're definitely in PCC." Yeah, I'm still scared it's going
1: to go wrong. And so, there's three general things that kind of cause a data breach. It's when there's been someone who's accessed without authorization, and so you know, typically it might be a hacker coming in or something like that, or it, a lot of the time it's actually an employee who doesn't actually have the rights to access certain areas of yep. the um, the uh, the uh, business's information. So. You may have, say, some of your the junior guys here, they don't need to know what your big financials are for the business personally. Whereas if you kind of find out that they've been looking at it and they've been you know, using it in some ways, you know, that could potentially be a data breach if they disclose it. Um, the other way is that disclosure of if you are necessary, um, by accident send something out or you send uh, some of your client information to the wrong client. So it could be some financial advice and you go, hey, you should do X, Y, Z. Um, but you send it to Jane Smith rather than Joe Smith, yeah. um, and you've disclosed all you know, their tax file number and all that type of stuff, you've got a data breach that you probably need to uh, notify the regulator for. And then the last one is if you actually lose it. And this can actually be a, a really interesting one that happens where it could be you take your computer in a, um, in a cab or a, more of an Uber nowadays, um, and you jump out and you go into the office and you realize you've, you know, you've left your laptop there or you've left the tablet um, that doesn't, isn't locked, and you've got access to everything in there and you've lost that type of information or you leave your file notes or whatever around. So those are the three main ways that are done. I do remember a
2: a breach of a firm that ended up going bankrupt. Um, They were a large accounting firm, I'm pretty sure they're called Harts, H-A-R-T-S, and um, or they got rid of a whole lot of clients and out in the dumpster, all the Mm. hard files were just thrown in the dumpster and somebody found them all and they had all the cl- not shredded, nothing. It yeah. was just all the files put into a big dumpster and there were hundreds of clients, financial files, everything about them, all sitting there. Mm. And this is before the date where you couldn't hold um, tax file numbers, et cetera. So, yeah. oh, you could hold tax file numbers, sorry. Yeah, sorry. And it was it was just like Oh, you kidding me? <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, yeah.
1: And I actually recall a similar incident that happened here in Melbourne um, on William Street where um, I went into work and all of a sudden people were talking about, oh, there was all this rubbish flowing down the street. And it was a similar incident where a law firm had dumped all these files, not into a proper waste bin or a secured waste bin, they just put it in there. And when the dump truck went and picked it up in the morning, it flipped it everywhere and all the private files were flowing down William Street around the Courts area. It was, it was quite an amazing scene. Lawyers picking them up, so yeah. I'm, <laughs> going on, I'm going to make
2: a fortune <laughs> here. I do remember a, a it was, it was a, a skit done on, you can probably find it on YouTube now, but it was about an old firm, one of the largest in the world, at the time called Arthur Andersons, who were the auditors for, uh, during the GFC, were the auditors mm-hmm. for a couple of the big uh, toxic debt uh, yeah. <laughs> organisations, like Lehman Brothers. Yeah. And it was Christmas time and at the building was flowing all this fake snow coming out the building and you go in there, it was all the auditors <laughs> <laughs> actually going through uh, and shredding it up, and yeah. it was all the shredding going out at <laughs> the windows. so it was just actually shredding, but it was just, oh look, it's snowing in New York City, <laughs> that's how many files I was shredding, quickly trying to, no, nah, this is no longer about yeah. as, as a result.
0: So what's, inter- what's interesting on that as well, and going on what you do, Jason, is we we're talking before about how you actually commercial and work with you know the board of the directors, the CFO, and things like that, because there may be decisions sometimes where you do have to cop a fine. Um, You know that's not obviously the way it's always going to work, but it's yeah. actually making that commercial decision sometimes. Yeah,
1: and essentially, our role isn't to tell businesses what to do. Yep. Um, we advise and we provide advice on what the risk and how to potentially mitigate that risk um, yeah and i think but i like that hearing it's actually advice and it's it's working with you're not you
0: know you're not actually advising them to do this but giving them knowledge across everything that correct yeah
1: and, and it's being able to understand what the options are yep. and saying if you do this this will be what the outcome is and we can assist you being able to get out of that issue but we probably don't recommend you doing it also to be very clear we don't recommend yeah. you doing it um but in the end it's saying these are your options we're not the ones that then go say to the board meeting or go into um and make that actual decision for what businesses do
0: i think as a business like as a business that is something that you want from your lawyer yeah in my opinion it's you know this is the guidelines these are the rules um this is what you face you know you have to make an informed decision and we can help you with that
1: yeah and i think for most businesses it's it's super important to have really clear people around you. Um, And financial advisors are kind of one of those real critical pillars to have around a business as well where you should have a really good accountant, you should have a really good financial advisor, you should have a really good legal team around you. Um, You know, for our clients, we hope that we provide that really core pillar that if a legal issue comes up, they can come to us. And I know for our team especially, it, it may be a 30 second question. And they give us a call and say, this is what we're thinking, we go, this is your issues these are your exposure these are your options off you go and make a decision yep. um, rather than a bit, like we try and take that real practical commercial aspect rather than here's a 30 page advice on what all your hundreds of options are like we also really focus on making sure that we give a recommendation and saying this is what we think you should do rather than these are all your options and good luck
0: yeah
2: can i ask um one of the things doesn't so much happen in law firms, because usually lawyers know the law, mm. uh, but ex-employees. Yeah. Uh, somebody leaves you, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, somebody leaves you and uh, they might have to go on gardening, leave, etc. but you've then found out afterwards that just prior to them leaving, they've downloaded the client base. Mm. Uh, might not have even taken the client's information off, but they've downloaded the client base. Who's in breach there? is it the employer who uh or is it the person who has Mm. taken that without uh under the privacy laws has taken all those client contacts and details without permission
1: well there's two parts to it Mm. the first bit is that the business is still going to be liable Mm. because you have in that situation either disclosed and we're talking about those three key things a data breach this is probably an unauthorized access so the person no longer has authorization to access that information Mm. um so 24 hours prior, they had the authorization. Then 24 hours into the future, no longer authorized. All of a sudden, you should, the business should have that type of procedure in place to stop that occurring. Mm. Um, it is really tricky with ex-employees where there is that grey area in between them leaving and you know if they are on gardening leave, um, and but it will still be on the business, but there may also be then the contractual obligations then between what the business has with that employee or ex-employee on how they end that relationship most employment contracts will have about when it does end and what things are happening indemnities and things like that so um, it'll go both ways but the obligation to if it was a serious breach where they took a whole client um, one and let's say they disclosed it to try and hurt that business or they started their own business like the it's going to be able, and they start marketing and things like that. Um, the obligation will still be on the original business to disclose that to the uh, regulator.
2: Mm, okay, that's, that's always interesting. So, um, but that that can be in all businesses. Yeah. yeah so, absolutely. so, especially if you know the the widget company goes and recruits uh, another widget companies salesperson Mm. and that salesperson uh at the mobile numbers and yeah things like that so so that's where
1: the employment contracts are just so critical Mm. um and in one of the big things that when we talk about employment contracts and employment law isn't something that i do specifically but important to have a good enough understanding of how it works in that if you don't have that contract that protects your business, and a lot of businesses, they get they come into business, they get started, they may kind of get some cheaper employment contracts as they're just starting and they don't have much revenue at the start, but then those actual contracts stay in place for the next 10, 15 years, and they never ever get looked at again. Um, highly advised to go speak to an employment lawyer and at least get them looked at to go, are these up to date, do they have the Current pieces of legislation that apply to them, mm. um, and making sure that you actually have the right protections. If there is some, if you're sending someone out as a contractor, etc., that they can't just take them and take all the IP with them.
2: Yeah, I do. I do remember a case in our industry about 15, oh, probably nearly 20 years ago now, where. An AMP advisor. Wasn't overly successful, but he sold his business to another AMP advisor mm. and then a month later <coughs> turned up in the industry as what was known back then as a multi agent. So contacting all his old AMP clients and yeah. um, so he got the check. It's like I, I regard that as like selling the house but then removing uh, refusing to move out. <laughs> <laughs> so it was um, but I just thought I just thought well, I first of all I just didn't think anything of the person. Yeah. Um, and how we found this out was we actually interviewed him to have a job with us, hmm. and he said, "Oh no, i will you know I've sold this, but no, I'll be able to bring them all across." And straight away, I was like, "Okay, so you're not going to work here, well, <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, you're out." And, no, and yeah,
1: that is a big part of some businesses would say, "Hey, let's do it," and yeah. but they bring that risk in house, yeah. and that due diligence is so critical right at the front to know if they're going, if an employee is going to bring business with them. And they bring it with them compliantly.
2: Oh, from our from our values perspective, straight away, yeah. he just didn't, he just was not an honest person. Yeah, and if so he's done it one place, why why you do it
1: again?
2: Oh yeah, he just wasn't on a, an honest person. Full stop. So, and that was you know it was, it was interesting that he thought that would be a precursor to me hiring him. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, that I would see that as a, a great thing, yeah. <laughs> not a not a not a pretty crappy thing. Yeah. and yeah, Lucky so. to
1: have found that out early. Who's bragging about it. Oh. <laughs> so, so
0: I was just
2: like, okay, uh, end of
1: interview. <laughs> so, it's,
0: uh, so we've we've discussed the sort of privacy and data protection and, mm. and compliance around that, but you also deal in financing side of law.
1: Yeah, so um, we do a little bit of um, like the borrowers and the lenders and being able to be engaged by with big international deals that where there's a financial, let's say it's a bank or another financial institution that's lending money to enable businesses to grow or to get out of trouble. Um, and so we may advise on the Australian aspects of those contracts and making sure that, you know, guarantees are in place correctly or the credit agreements comply with Australian law. Um, so it's kind of that broadness and that again, add value contractual side of things that we do that uh, makes my job really interesting and continues to kind of keep me active and engaged every day because it's not doing the same thing every day and repetitive work. It's different clients, different work. Um, Fortunately, then it's getting the work right so that our clients come back to us and we do it again. And a lot of our work is um, not You know, one come in, say thanks, we'll take your money and we'll never talk to you again. Most of our clients, we would do ongoing work and be able to remain as that real critical advisor.
2: Jason, is that becoming more prevalent nowadays with international money coming in from venture capital and private equity? Yeah, a a little bit, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of Asian money now coming in, buying businesses or buying equity in businesses here and a lot still a lot of us money
1: especially there's quite a few different markets we've had like european clients or if it's in um, the us or in um, the northern american type of area um, it's more than creating local knowledge of because australian laws have some real unique characteristics around it and making sure that you comply with them and that any uh, contracts or any agreements or deeds that are drafted actually comply with Australia's laws um, and can be really importantly enforced here. Mm. Um, so if there's an Australian element where one of the businesses are actually located in Australia, it may actually not work if the whole agreement is actually drafted, say in US law, because you can't go to an Australia or you, you may be able to be, be more difficult to enforce it in an Australian court.
2: Yeah, so I suppose historically um, the large international firms like the Baker and McKenzie's, et cetera, who, you know, they've got their US client who's Mm. now expanding to Australia, so they just use the local Baker and McKenzie office to to put all that in place. But it seems to be more, you know, McPherson, Kelly and other firms as well have the international presence now uh, through association.
1: Correct, yeah. So we're um, Australia's only um, partner in multi-law, so... It's a group of, I'm not sure the exact number, it's 150-ish maybe law firms throughout the world um, where we are engaged consistently by other international firms to work on the Australian aspects and we likewise refer work out through our multi-law network, uh, which is really good because it means that as the market becomes more globalised, it's not just Australia-centric anymore. You can't just be only operating in the Australian market if you want to go, say, from a small business to a mid-size or mid-size to large. And the really critical part is that you need those advisors around you to be able to operate and grow with you. So we have that really unique capability of, although we don't have offices in London or New York, etc., we have actual partners or other law firms in each of those different markets that we can engage with very quickly and obtain that local knowledge.
2: It's interesting because we've had international groups very interested in us, in entering this market and interested in us. Mm. And one of the things I did say to Jamie is that uh, this can become a very expensive legal part to say no. Mm. So make sure that we want to say yes before
1: Correct. we engage yeah. the lawyers
2: involved when you're dealing internationally.
1: Very much so. Yep. Um, yeah, the, the rates, et cetera, they're very different um, internationally than they are to Australia. But then again, they work very different hours and have different types of um expectations placed no i'm
2: just more in in respect to engaging you guys (laughs) to go go through this we're talking international here as well so it's uh yeah so it's um i don't know if your hourly rates are different when you have to talk at 3am compared to to having to talk at 10am but it's uh but it, it that's why you know i have said that we have to on the surface really want this to happen correct before we're going to go and spend twenty or thirty thousand dollars in legal fees to make sure Mm. that we are protected if it does happen
1: very much so and it is again that commercial decision of does the risk or the um what you're going to expend outweigh what the potential positive outside of it is and going into some of those bigger markets there are really some big benefits there and if you can crack in and actually grow into them like the US market or, you know, into the Asian markets or so more
2: growing into us in the our well, aspect. Yeah, but yes. So, it, it, yeah.
1: it kind of just yeah, really makes you go to a next level very quickly, but very crit- critically making sure that you spend the money to get it done correctly at the start and not just spending money for the sake of spending money, but getting people in that know what they're doing and experienced in that area.
2: We did that for a case of a large buy sell agreement, which I won't mention the group's name, but um, the guy who funded it was, we were actually trying to find his place of residence because it was a, a week, a month in the US, a week, a month mm-hmm. in London, a week, a month in Australia, and a week, a month in New Zealand, and uh, and he was the major shareholder, a major funder. We ended up getting the insurance done through New Zealand, and the application was actually signed and on his desk when his helicopter fell out the sky and he died. And, you know, to to give credence to the insurer at the time, who was Tau Life, who is now Mm -hmm. Tau, they paid it out um, because the application was all signed with an accidental death clause Mm -hmm. uh, that was built in there. So that the company... who was then run by the MD here? Very successfully sold for a huge amount of money about four years ago, or not? Mm. No, about two years ago now. Uh, but that was a very interesting case yeah. uh, to actually be involved in. We were just doing the insurance side of it. Um, as far as the buy sell agreement, but the buy sell agreement had to be done here. Yeah. And just the the cost that was involved because okay, we see domosol. Yeah, um And yeah tower took it on because tower at the time were actually New Zealand's largest insurer as well yeah. so that's how we got the uh the cross border yeah. um insurance put in place but that was a um that was a very interesting case yeah yeah but just understanding international law I think is very yeah, important
1: the the multi-jurisdictional ones they yeah. become very interesting very quickly and, and you learn a lot which is again the really good part of it is that you don't need... For these, it's not having a really intimate knowledge of yeah. the other laws. It's being able to have enough knowledge to know who to talk to and who to actually engage with.
2: But I think that's the key, though, isn't it? Is that sometimes people don't know that they actually potentially have a problem mm. or just say, no, that looks good and don't bother Correct. Uh, yeah. spending some money just to have someone's eyes, who's an expert, mm. uh, cast their eye over it because they just see it as an expense. Fair I mean, right. I, yeah. it's... It, you know, it's it's a case of Jason cast your eye over this and you say, no, that's really great, but here's my bill for saying that. And you say, well, that was a waste, wasn't it? But at the same time, if you saw stuff in there that it was a mm. case of, it's, it's far better you saying, yes, that's done good, rather than you coming back or me saying to you, I've got a problem. What's wrong with this? And you say, well, why didn't you come to us first?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is that proactive nature, again, where we try and engage with our clients We're out of the blue as well. Like we'll just go give them a call and say, How you doing? Let's catch up for a coffee or let's just see how your business is doing. We really enjoy being able to talk to them about what their plans are for you know the six months coming up. And they may say something that seems completely normal and you know, using the globalisation kind of stuff as an example, i go, Oh, we're about to expand into New Zealand. To them it's all good, you know, they've got signed up with this party, but in our mind, it's ticking straight away going, you know, have you got your IP protected in New Zealand? Have you made sure that you've got those, how are those contracts there? Have you got indemnities in place? How's the personal information going to be transferred from Australia to New Zealand? All the different elements that kind of go into that deal that sit behind the, we're going into New Zealand. Mm. Um, but we wouldn't know that unless we actually ask.
2: Yeah, so it's uh, interesting from a trademark perspective. I think Kofkin's is very few of us, so we're quite safe going internationally because yeah. all the relatives seem to be doctors and lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, uh, so, yeah, one of the odd ones out. One the and the one out. who is in our industry doesn't have our surname anyway. He married into the family yeah. <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> so it's, um, That's right. So
0: yeah. Last question of the one, and we're finishing on Willard's favourite that he likes to drop in every now and then. Yeah. What was your favourite card
1: growing up? Uh, so a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a left field one. <laughs> but i like it um for me probably tintin yep um which there's it's maybe not a whole heap of people it's like an early 90s cartoon that was quite a lot of co- um, comic books beforehand yeah um but for me tintin it was always like an adventure and it was going around traveling and it's kind of instilled that sense of adventure and travel into me into going to places that you know a, different to what australia is and like fortunately i've been able to travel a fair bit in my life in going into europe or into africa or into north america but um like there was one episode of it where they like travel the inca trails and now it's kind of like one of those bucket list things to go and do and go and have a look at like the aztecs and the incas and all that type of stuff just getting overseas right now i'm
2: not going to let you end on that james sorry but it's uh because my analysis of that answer is: We're speaking to a, man, a young man who, even at a young age, was very intellectual. Because mine was just the Simpsons. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, 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 I don't know whether because I resonated with Homer, was, uh, but mine was more the Simpsons. And you'd probably be Bart. Yeah. But it's um, but it just it just in regards to McPherson Kelly, one of the things that I've enjoyed really getting to know you guys over the last several years is. You actually are that uh, mid-tier law firm that does the big-tier work, but your your clients are the family-owned SMEs. Mm. Uh, they are very successful family-owned SMEs, but you, you do, your clients, uh, they, one thing I've always said is that a lot of people forget the fact that you look at a business as a name. It's still run by a human being. It's still run yeah. by somebody who is, you know, it might be a spouse, Might have gone through a divorce. Might have kids off the rails. Might have still has to pay private school fees. Still has to pay a mortgage. Still has to run a business. Mm. uh, Things like that as well. And I I think that's where McPherson Kelly actually do it really well. Is they've what I've seen, um, you know, from Jamie all the way down. But what I've actually seen is not you, (laughs) Jamie Sturgis, our Jamie. Yeah. So it's um, but from Jamie all the way down. It's it's been long term relationships as well.
1: Yeah, and it's taking that understanding of what's the background of the business it's not just going in there and going here's your problem here's your answer it's more about before we even talk about what the problem is it's like let's talk about what your business is and how does this look on the commercial landscape type of aspect and where do you sit and what are your plans going forward and all of those other parts of the business actually will probably influence what the decision making is and the strategy for any issues that come up. Yeah. Um, and that that's a super important part for us in actually understanding the business who the people are behind it and you know what they're wanting to do and where they're wanting to take it and i I love seeing businesses grow and like being in that medium area most of them have started from that small business and they've grown into medium and now they've come into this regulatory space where things are starting to get really serious and they're having to appoint new positions and start um, doing things that they hadn't done when they were just growing as a business and now we try and help them go from that and keep going up and up and up
2: yeah. I remember you saying to me, Jamie, that if we have a list, you do not want to be the CEO of a listed company. I said, I won't do that to you for the first five years. You will mentor, <laughs> we'll get someone else in who will mentor you into yeah, that I position. Yeah, I what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. 10 years
0: later. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Jason, thank you very much for coming in today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and talking with us. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, thanks Tony. Thanks a lot, Jason.